Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Governor Newsom proposes big spending to resuscitate California's economy. I mean, we, yes, we have this enormous budget surplus right now, but how are we going to do it once this money runs out? I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego healthcare centers say they have the shots, but not enough arms. So now we're moving to a phase where there's this smaller group of people who aren't as eager, aren't as motivated to get vaccinated, but who still need to get their shots if, as a community, we're going to really slow the spread of the virus. A San Diego author explores Asian American history and heritage for young adults, and a focus on short films made by local filmmakers during the pandemic. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The numbers are staggering. In the past two days, Governor Gavin Newsom has unveiled parts of a $100 billion pandemic recovery plan for California. Included in those proposals are a second round of $600 stimulus checks and a $12 billion plan to secure housing for homeless Californians. The massive spending plan comes as California finds itself with an estimated $76 billion budget surplus, plus extra billions in federal pandemic recovery funds. All of this is taking place in anticipation of a full reopening of California's economy and with a backdrop of a pending recall election for Governor Newsom. Joining me is KQED's Senior Editor of Politics and Government, Scott Schaefer. And Scott, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. Now, that's a lot of numbers. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, I'll try not to add to that pile. <laughs> Let's talk first about, though we have to, the stimulus checks and rent relief the governor is proposing. Who's getting the stimulus checks this time around? Well, you know, this is a, an expansion of a program that uh, the state began earlier this year, which was targeted at the lowest income earners. And this is going to uh, expand that to 
individuals or households earning up to $75,000 uh, in adjusted gross income. And that's about two thirds, they estimate, two thirds of Californians will be getting a check for uh, $600. And then if they have dependent children that they've listed on their income taxes, they'll get an additional 500. So 1100 for those that weren't eligible for any of the earlier checks, and then an additional 500 for those who did get that first round of $600 checks uh, if they have dependent kids. And there's also a proposal to kind of fill in the gaps of previous rent relief programs. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the governor is proposing, and of course, all these are proposals because uh, they have to, uh, the legislature has to have its hearings on the budget. But it's notable that this week, uh, when all this was rolled out, at least in Oakland, uh, that the chairs of the Senate and Assembly Budget Committees were there with the governor. So that's essentially a stamp of approval, although they may ask for even more money given how much there is. But the renter assistance uh, is going to be $5 billion. It's going to be used to pay back rent for those affected by the pandemic. And that's an additional, uh, in addition to earlier uh, rental assistance that the governor laid out. You know, you have to be eligible. There will be an application process. And I think that's worth noting, Maureen, because uh, this is not an automatic payment. And uh, we were talking uh, yesterday with one of the legislators, and they said that, uh, you know, it's been really slow in rolling out that earlier pot of money for renters. Uh, not as many renters have actually benefited from the relief, as you might imagine, because of that application and approval process. Okay. So Governor Newsom actually was in San Diego yesterday. He was proposing a $12 billion program to provide housing for California's homeless. And is it based on what we have seen here in San Diego during the pandemic, where motels and hotels are used to provide housing? Yeah, that certainly is part of it, uh, that uh, retrofitting of hotels and motels that uh, were used uh, during the pan earlier uh, months of the pandemic. So those would become more uh, permanent. But there's a question that homeless advocates have, which is how is this going to be sustained? I mean, we, yes, we have this enormous budget surplus right now, but how are we going to do it once this money runs out? And this is true for a lot of the things. I mean, the governor today is proposing $14.5 billion uh, for the schools, including expanding trans transitional kindergarten for uh, all age appropriate kids. Well, that's great. But like what happens when there's a downturn? Because as we know, in California, the revenues, uh, it's a roller coaster. They go up and then they come down at some point. So, but what happens when that money runs out? And where did all this money come from with this enormous budget surplus? So if you look at the $100 billion, about a quarter of it, uh, $26, $27 billion, is from the Recovery Act that the Biden administration proposed and Congress passed. And the rest of it largely comes from the booming stock market. I mean, California is disproportionately reliant on income tax. And we tax the highest income earners and especially things like capital gains, uh, stock options that get cashed in. That's taxed at a very high level. And because the stock market has just roared back since the pandemic in ways that nobody really anticipated, a lot of entrepreneurs have decided, well, this is a good time to do an initial public offering. Let's take advantage of all this exuberance. And so a number of companies have had very successful initial public offerings. And as those employees begin to cash their stock in, California takes its share. So this is really largely driven by the stock market, which shows how powerful California's uh, sort of innovation economy is when it comes to our state budget. Now, you say that uh, the Democratic legislators look like they this this these proposals will sail through uh, Sacramento without much of a hitch. But what's been the Republican reaction? Well, <laughs> 
some of the proponents of the recall are saying we can take credit for this tax uh, rebate. You know, he's only doing this because he knows he's, there's a recall on the ballot. And I think there's some truth for, to that. I think there's actually some truth in general to the fact that this recall campaign has lit a fire under Newsom. We've seen him out and about in ways we never did before uh, the recall became a serious uh, issue. So uh, I think there's some truth to that. Then you've got like today, Kevin Faulkner is proposing a uh, broad middle-class tax cut. Uh, so Republicans are saying, hey, w- why do we need all this revenue? Let's not just give a rebate. Let's cut our tax rate. And then you've got people like Mitt Romney, Senator Mitt Romney from Utah, who tweeted yesterday, why are we giving California $26 billion in federal money? They've got a $75 billion surplus. And so, you know, there's some truth to that as well. Uh, so, you know, generally speaking, Republicans are sort of keeping to their, uh, you know, talking points and positions, policy positions on taxes, lower taxes. And that involves a lot more numbers too, Scott. So we're going to leave it there. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> I've been speaking with KQED Senior Editor of Politics and Government, Scott Schaefer. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Maureen, anytime. Gone are the days of long lines, internet delays, and supply shortages for the coronavirus vaccine. Demand in San Diego County is down. Supply is so abundant, healthcare systems are asking for less doses. So is this an indication we are winning this fight against COVID-19 and close to herd immunity? Or does this mean there is much more work to do in terms of getting people vaccinated? Jonathan Wozen, who is the San Diego Union-Tribune's biotech reporter, has been covering this and joins us now. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for having me. In your recent report, Dr. Marlene Millen, who led vaccination efforts at UCSD, said we are in the hand-to-hand combat phase of vaccination. What is meant by that? So I think what Marlene was saying is that if you think back to January, if you think back to February, there were so many people who wanted a vaccine who couldn't get one. And the moment they became eligible, they were lining up outside Petco, they were lining up outside of pharmacies looking for extra doses, showing up early in the morning, late at night. I was getting emails from a lot of readers, uh, some of whom were, you know, stuck in traffic trying to get to a vaccine site and wanted to know exactly when and where they could get their shot. A lot of those people have now gotten their shots and they've been vaccinated for some time. And so now we're moving into a phase where the people who haven't been vaccinated may be a little on the fence. They may feel that it's too inconvenient to go to a vaccine site outside the neighborhood away from where they work, uh, they may have some serious questions about the vaccines and about the virus. So now we're moving to a phase where there's this smaller group of people who aren't as eager, aren't as motivated to get vaccinated, but who still need to get their shots if as a community, we're going to really slow the spread of the virus to the point that it needs to be for long term getting back to normal life. How far have the numbers of people getting their first shot declined? So we don't have data at the county level for that. We've asked for that from the county and haven't gotten it just yet. But in a, in a general way, we can look at the UCSD numbers in terms of first doses, which are people who haven't been vaccinated and are now beginning that process uh, as few as a few hundred first doses a day. Uh, second dose numbers are still pretty high at UC San Diego. A lot of people who got the first shot are still coming back for the second. But the number of people deciding to get vaccinated now 
uh, seems to be going down a bit. That, that could change pretty soon once kids 12 through 15 become eligible, and that could happen by this Wednesday afternoon. But for the moment, demand has definitely gotten uh, much lower, and we can see data supporting that. You spoke with Dr. Suzanne Aflalo, who organized vaccination clinics that mainly targeted communities of color. Demand at those clinics dropped drastically, too. Why is that? Well, it's basically for the same reasons. You know, in the beginning, uh, Dr. Aflalo was talking about really focusing on creating vaccine sites in parts of the community where a lot of Black and Latino San Diegans are already going, community centers, you know, local YMCAs, churches, places that are familiar, and basically being able to create that infrastructure and have people show up in those settings, uh, holding town halls essentially with the county and with other trusted messengers in the Black community. So a lot of the folks who simply you know, wanted a place to go and maybe had a couple questions, but weren't necessarily vaccine skeptics per se. Uh, they've been vaccinated too. So it's not just a, a matter of the big healthcare systems seeing the slowdown. We're seeing it at, at the community, at the grassroots level. And what she expressed to me is that there's a real need now to have smaller conversations, maybe not one-on-one, but you know, smaller, more intimate conversations with people about uh, the questions they have around the vaccines. And it's no longer just a matter of creating these sites in the community, but but then going out and really uh, answering specific questions that each person has. Right. I mean, and, and where are we at within various communities? I mean, in the communities of, of color that were hardest hit, for example, is this an indication that outreach efforts in those communities that were not being reached when this pandemic started and that were being hit hardest worked? Or is there still a lot of work to do in terms of getting people vaccinated at this point? Well, I think we've seen a lot of progress in the South region, in South County. Their vaccination rates have been pretty strong, especially among older San Diegans, and at this point more broadly as well. Uh, where we're still seeing numbers lag a little bit is actually in East County, so generally more conservative region of San Diego County. And that's something that we have, uh, one of my colleagues is looking into right now, and where the messaging around the vaccines and around the virus has been mixed in terms of the value of the vaccines, what you can do before and after you're vaccinated. So I think particularly in East County, where there hasn't been as concerted of an effort uh, to have trusted messengers to make vaccines accessible and and to get information out there, uh, we're still seeing more of a slowdown there than we are in the South region right now. Do you have a sense of what it will take then to convince the rest of the population who can get vaccinated to go ahead and do so? Yeah, it's a good question, especially considering that as big as the numbers might appear when it comes to how many San Diegans have been vaccinated, we're we're not there yet. So to put it in perspective, the county's goal is to have about 2 million residents fully vaccinated by July. Right now, we're at about 1.27 million. So that leaves around 700 plus thousand San Diegans who haven't been fully vaccinated yet. Some of them will be because they've gotten shot one and just need to get shot two. Uh, But Clearly, we're not at that point of herd immunity, even though the COVID numbers daily are relatively low. They're not as low as, as they need to be, is what we keep hearing. You know, I've, I, I talked for this most recent story with uh, Anna Mir, who studies human behavior and decision-making at, at uh, the Rady School of Business and Management. And what, what he said, which was kind of interesting, was really that at, at this point, it may not 
necessarily be a matter of getting the information, getting the stats, getting the facts out there to people because the pandemic's been going on for a while and those numbers have been out there for a while. Uh, but it might be more about creating a system where you have clear incentives and you're communicating those incentives to the people who haven't been vaccinated. So if it's more of an argument of get vaccinated because you'll be able to do X, Y, and Z, you'll be able to go you know, dine in restaurants, you'll be able to get together with, with family and friends. So I think the, the type of messaging that's needed uh, needs to be different, especially since the people who haven't been vaccinated are generally a younger group. So if we're talking about people who are 18, 20, 25, you know, COVID outcomes tend to be pretty different than if you're 80 years old, where uh, we have data showing that about one out of every seven San Diegans, 80 plus, who got COVID actually passed away from it. So, you know, explaining uh, the impact of long-term COVID, explaining the fact that some young people still can get really sick, but then also making the case that, you know, this is going to be the way that you can get back to all the normal things in terms of getting together with friends and family and going to concerts. Uh, that might be the different messaging that's needed right now. I've been speaking with Jonathan Wozen, the San Diego Union-Tribune's biotech reporter. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Late last month, San Diego DA Summer Stefan announced that her office was dissolving the last remaining gang injunctions in San Diego County. Those were restraining orders issued by a court that limited the movement of alleged gang members. Race and equity reporter Christina Kim tells us what happens now that the injunctions are gone. Travis Smith hasn't been to his grandmother's house on J Street in southeast San Diego in over a decade. As we walk towards the newly painted blue house, he stops. When I first walked up, it was just like, boom, you know, I got hit with so many memories. This is my daddy's house when he was a kid, you know what I mean? So definitely, you know, through the generations, you know, this is home. It's always going to be home. But for 13 years, the now 37-year-old Smith couldn't go home. His name was put on a gang injunction, a court order that determined where he could and couldn't be. His grandmother's house was right in the middle of a restricted area. In 2006, when his name was added to the gang injunction, Smith was a member of the West Coast Crips. Years before, Smith had been convicted of gun possession, as well as drug possession and sales. But he says the crimes weren't gang-related, and he'd already finished his probation. Smith still remembers what went through his head when two gang officers knocked on his mother's door and told him that he was on a gang injunction. How is this going to work? How am I not going to go to this store that I've been going to for 20-some years? How am I not going to go to this park that I've been hanging out at for 
You know, how? The main idea behind gang injunctions is if you make it extremely difficult for gang members to congregate or live in a community, they'll eventually go away and the community will be better off. Smith says he understands the need to end gang violence and he doesn't make excuses about his choices. But he is among many who say the injunctions have harmed far more people than they've helped. People like his grandmother who passed away in 2010. They did a number. I mean, not being able to see your grandsons. You used to seeing your grandsons out front barbecuing and then next thing you know, you don't see them and you're older. I mean, that's the... American dream, right? To get you a house and have your grandsons and your kids dwelling around, right? Well, they took that from us. Many law enforcement leaders have come around to Smith's way of thinking in recent years. San Diego County DA Summer Steffen began removing names from gang injunction lists two years ago. And in April, she announced that her office was ending all of the county's remaining gang injunctions. The change in Stefan's approach, however, has been slow. In 2019, she was against a recommendation by the city's gang commission to immediately end all injunctions. I may not act as quickly as somebody might like me to act because I have a duty to take thoughtful, considered action to make sure that I don't have collateral damage. She says the process of methodically reviewing cases for the past few years has changed her mind even though she's still not convinced the injunctions didn't reduce gang violence during their peak use. Well, what I've learned is that you always have to be open-minded to change and that things that worked in law enforcement years ago may be cast too wide of a net. For Smith, the scars from being caught up in that net run deep, and they won't just go away because there's been a shift in policy. During the visit to his old neighborhood, he heads to Mullen's Market and Liquor Store on the busy corner of Imperial and 30th. As he looks at the building where his former church used to be, two police cars drive by and one parks across the street. This is the, 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 the worst part. I'm not on an injunction. I'm not a part of a gang. And just standing right here, I still feel like, you know what I'm saying? Even seeing this police officer, you know, that, that, that's what I, when I was talking about that trauma from being jacked up by the gang suppression and this is it right here. How do you feel seeing that police right I now? mean, I thought he was coming from me. Inez Corona says she hears experiences like what happened to Smith all the time. She's a therapist at Rise Up Industries, a nonprofit that works exclusively with former gang members who have been incarcerated. You've been conditioned when you have so many of these negative interactions, right, that are oftentimes violent, frightening. Um, you feel helpless in them. Corona says it's important to address former gang members' mental health and re-entry into society. Because it's not an individual problem, it's a community problem, and it has a ripple effect and impacts all of us. Travis Smith wants to see programs like Rise Up Industries in his old neighborhood. He can't help but wonder what might have happened if he'd been given therapy instead of being placed on the injunction. Now a minister who's been sober for 14 years and the father of four girls, he says institutions that upheld gang injunctions have a part to play in rebuilding communities. you got to come back and you have to bring healing with you. After we part ways, Smith will drive 20 miles to get to his current house. He's still undoing years of conditioning that kept him away from these places that used to be home. Christina Kim, KPBS News. Joining me is Inez Corona, a therapist at Rise Up Industries. Inez, welcome to the program. Hi, Maureen. Thank you. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about Rise Up? What's its mission? Rise Up is a reentry program that helps formerly incarcerated individuals and former gang-involved individuals successfully re-enter society. And they do that with a comprehensive system of support that not only includes job skills trainings, uh, it's an 18-month CNC machining training program, but they also receive therapy services, case management, mentorship, and other sources of support to help them succeed. Okay, so do the former gang members contact you or does the therapy start while they are incarcerated? So the application process can start when members are incarcerated um, and some actually reach out and apply even shortly after their release. Their first interaction with a therapist is actually during the application process in which they undergo a thorough psychosocial assessment, which is a comprehensive evaluation of their mental, physical, and emotional health. It's also an opportunity for us to determine their ability to function within a community, and it gives us a more detailed look into their needs, and so then we can tailor their treatment plans. And Inez, what kinds of trauma do you see in people who've been in gangs and incarcerated? Many, if not most of them, have been exposed to violence, death, witnessing death, various forms of abuse, neglect, and not just in their home environments, right, uh, in, within their communities. Um, they witness or directly experience police brutality. And then you add, you know, the punitive and abusive prison environment, which they're exposed to as well. And what kinds of problems do these sort of unresolved issues cause in people's efforts to move on to a different life? What we see mostly is PTSD, depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. What do you hear from people about the problems that they're encountering when they try to move on to a different life? What are the obstacles they face? Right. A lack of job skills, a lack of employment history, a lack of housing, food insecurity, transportation challenges, you know, social problems. Often, again, addiction, which directly impacts their physical health, not just their mental and emotional health. And, and let me ask you this. In what ways did gang injunctions actually make it harder for former members to build a new life? Well, having your name on a list, you know, restricted a lot of their efforts in terms of their ability to obtain employment. You know, employers typically won't hire those with criminal convictions on their records. So it really limits their job prospects. Um, it also prevents them from receiving public housing assistance and social services assistances, again, such as food resources. And all of that is compounded, right, with um, sometimes they face homelessness or addiction and mental health challenges. Now, you say in the report that addressing former gang members' mental health issues is important not just for the gang members, but for the whole community. Why is that? I think gangs are only a symptom of a larger issue, right? Um, so yes, there are individual challenges that they face that absolutely need to be addressed. And then in terms of community and increasing safety, it's important for us to think about what happens when these individuals don't receive the necessary support and resources, how it perpetuates right, the challenges that they face in terms of mental illness, addiction, and the maladaptive behavior they engage in to sustain those 
right? So we may see it in the form of violence or theft, as well as the cost to taxpayers. They're a huge people who struggle with homelessness or drug addiction or mental health issues are a huge strain on public resources, um, emergency room services, law enforcement, first responders um, or emergency responders. So it costs both literally and figuratively the community. Do you find that communities are open to accepting people back who maybe once terrorized that same community when they were in a gang? I believe some people are, and I believe the more information and awareness and context that people have would increase the number of people that would be more accepting and open to allowing people to have a second chance, right? I've been speaking with Inez Corona, a therapist at Rise Up Industries. Inez, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. As college students have been stuck at home during the pandemic, one way they've sought community is through online video games. This competitive gaming, also called eSports, is gaining popularity on California college campuses where professors say recreational play is leading to professional opportunities. KQED and Cal Matters reporter Marisa Martinez has the story. Romeo Zanblancas is the student president of the Cal State Dominguez Hills Esports Association. Over the summer of COVID, like a lot of people started trying to get more involved in on campus, even though they weren't on campus. So that was basically just like basically opening the doors into competitive esports for a lot of students. Blancas' academic advisor, Ruben Caputo, says that the pandemic amplified a community he saw growing at the campus. He says he wants students to see that there is professional potential attached to their gaming skills. When you see esports and you're part of an organization that actually treats this with high level of respect, and we, we then are able to help bring transfer students that are coming from different colleges to now be in a space that understands, oh, wow, this is this is beyond a club. I'm actually having internship opportunities from this. I'm actually having to put this down in my resume. Students at Dominguez Hills can even earn a school certificate in esports. San Francisco State also has its own offering in the form of an advanced media performance course and esports club. The class teaches students how to manage the production of esports tournaments, which includes marketing campaigns, audience outreach, and technical streaming software knowledge. It was an awesome experience. I learned so much, and that kind of just threw me into the water and uh, got me prepared for pretty much everything that I've done since. Those opportunities and that experience is 100% why I'm here today. SF State alum Fernando Gomez is now the digital content coordinator for the Portland Trailblazers. Dr. Dina Ibrahim teaches that course. What I wanted to do was just provide a venue for students who are doing it anyway to get credit. And Ibrahim says, if campuses are going to start taking esports seriously, they need to make sure students have the support they need to pursue esports academically. What we've seen during the pandemic is the stark, vast digital divide. My students are living in their cars. They're living in RVs. There's a lot of access issues that campuses should be providing. Ibrahim is looking to create a center on the SF State campus where her students can have access to PCs, Wi-Fi, and the ability to host esports tournaments. I kept thinking, how are we evolving, right? Higher ed needs to evolve or die. 
we need to be teaching students relevant skills that's going to get them jobs in a rapidly changing landscape. This, Ibrahim says, is the future of digital media. Amadisa Martinez in Rancho Cucamonga. So much of American identity can be explored through heritage, particularly in the traditions that families pass down from generation to generation. For many Korean Americans, the question of identity means examining how these traditions fit into the modern way of life and what it means to truly embrace one's heritage and history. These themes are explored in a new children's book that tells the story of a 10-year-old girl who learns to embrace her Korean heritage by immersing herself in her family's history and legacy. It's a story with a particular resonance right now during Asian and Pacific American Heritage Month, as well as a time where Asian Americans are facing a rising tide of racism. Joining us now is Christine Peck, author of The Girl in the Gold Dress. Christine, welcome. Thank you, Jade. Thank you for having me. So, Christine, I've got to ask, so much of this book has to do with examining the importance of family, tradition, and heritage. What inspired you to create a story that draws on these themes? You know, the inspiration actually came from my own family experience. A couple years ago, in 2019, I took my family, my children, to South Korea for the first time. And it really was a special experience because we visited the marketplace where their great-grandmother had once sold hanbok fabrics. Hanboks are traditional Korean dresses. And so my daughter ended up getting a hanbok dress at that very same marketplace. The moment just felt, gosh, so amazing to be able to connect her to her history that way. I have been wanting to write a children's book with my mom, the illustrator, uh, for a long time. And that's the idea that sparked this book. As you mentioned, your mother was the illustrator on this project. Did you know from the start that you wanted to have her involved in this project? Oh, absolutely. That was the make or break thing for me. It was always going to be a book that I wrote and that my mom illustrated. She immigrated from South Korea to America in the 1970s, and she had been an art major in college but she couldn't afford the tuition. She dropped out. She got married and immigrated to America and really put aside her art career to pursue the American dream and to raise her three kids. And so this was a way of kind of thanking her, paying her back to be able to showcase her art in this way. And I'm so, so proud of her. This has been a really emotional and special experience for both of us. And, you know, even though the audience for your book is children, it touches on some very serious subject matters, particularly in a brief depiction of a war-torn Korea. Why was it so important to invoke this more somber imagery? I did wonder whether war and that topic was appropriate for children, but it's so integral to the history of Koreans and Korean Americans that I didn't feel like I could tell the story without that component because it was really central to our family history and many family histories. And I think, um, you know, to be able to show the struggle, the hardship, the sacrifice that our ancestors went through, and to be able to honor that, that was really important for me. And how much of this story is autobiographical? 
I get that question often, you know, is this a true story? Is it based on a true story? And the answer is yes, somewhat. And so I would call it historical fiction. Obviously, the Korean War happened. And the other things that happened in this book are the moment in the marketplace where the character Hannah goes to the marketplace to get a hanbok dress. And it's the same marketplace that her great grandma once sold hanbok fabrics. That is true in our family history. The other thing that also happened are those, you know, perilous train rides uh, when people were fleeing the war from uh, North Korea to South Korea. You found a spot on that train, whether you crammed into a compartment or rode on the roof. And so we've heard many harrowing stories from our grandmothers, great grandmothers about what happened then. And then the other thing that is true and that actually happened is the wrapping of the fabric around the body to transport the fabric as a way of making a living and surviving. And so that story really stood out from our grandmother. And I really wanted to include that as a key moment in the book. And I'm sure when you began working on this book, it was hard to imagine it would be released at a time when we're seeing an increase in anti-Asian American rhetoric and violence. How does it feel as an author to have a work that so explicitly deals with the importance of cultural connection uh, to come out at a time like this? The timing could not be more important. Of course, with COVID happening, that actually was the impetus for us starting on this project. It's taken about a year to from start to finish. Initially, it was because we had the time. You know, our evenings were free. We were stuck at home. I told my mom, it's now or never. And then as the Asia, anti-Asian crimes started occurring and we started hearing more about this in the news, we thought, oh my goodness, you know, there, there's a sense of urgency here. And to have this book now come out for um, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month and amidst all these anti-Asian hate crimes, it's more important than ever. I firmly believe that the key to combating racism and ignorance is education. And so children and even adults who see this book and see that other cultures, people different from them, are to be respected, included, and it's something beautiful to be shared, I think that creates future generations that will feel the same way. I've been speaking with Christine Peck, author of The Girl in the Gold Dress. Christine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman.
48-hour film project and the San Diego International Film Festival have been partnering for years to highlight short films made by local filmmakers. This Friday at noon, the best of the pandemic produced 48-hour short films will be available in a virtual shorts fest. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with 48-hour film project organizer Dwayne Trammell and filmmaker Christina Ruby. Dwayne, the 48-Hour Film Project is going to be having a special screening showcase at the San Diego International Film Festival this year. So for people who may not be familiar, explain what a 48-Hour Film Project is all about. Sure. Well, the 48-Hour Film Project is in its 20th year. It's a worldwide filmmaking competition where teams of filmmakers in, in certain cities around the world, and there's about 130 or so cities, on a competition weekend, teams of filmmakers meet and they're given a a line of dialogue, a character and a prop, and they draw a random film genre, two different film genres. And they have 48 hours from 7 p.m. on Friday to 7.30 p.m. on Sunday, which is an additional half hour that was historically for travel time. Of course, these days we kind of do it electronically, but they still get the extra half hour. So they have 48 hours to write, shoot, edit, and turn in a complete film. And then the films are judged locally with the winning film going on to Filmapalooza, which is held in some city around the world somewhere. From all those films, a winning film is chosen as a grand champion. So Christina, for a filmmaker, why do you want to put yourself through the ordeal of trying to crank something out in just 48 hours? What's the fun or the challenge of that? That's actually the best part of it is that, you know what I like to tell people? So when I put out the movie that we made, I like to tell them, if you think it's amazing, we made this in 48 hours. And if you don't think it's great, just remember, we made this in 48 hours. So it like like buys you a lot of flexibility and credence from people that they're like, oh, wow, you made this in 48 hours. That's amazing. But that's part of the appeal for me is that you get basically carte blanche to do whatever you want to do because there's really no downside to doing something awesome in that time frame. Like with my film specifically, we made it a one shot, which is where the bulk of it, there's no edits because I wanted a thing that I was like, we're gonna get it. Like we rehearsed all day, we five of our seven minutes is a one shot because I just wanted to see it and have it all come together. But yeah, I'm not in it for the long haul. I want the instant gratification. And in running this program, what is it that you see in filmmakers that comes out when you force them to kind of work with these restrictions of time and character and a dialogue line and, you know, a prop? Uh, the, the single biggest thing is the creativity. A side note to the creativity is just the teamwork and how everyone just loves doing this competition. I know as a a film student, I did it right after I graduated San Diego State, and I feel like I learned as much doing the 48-hour film project as I did in any of the film projects that I did in, in school. The compression of time forces you to be creative and to make decisions very quickly. And Christina, your film that is going to screen is called Sound Bites. So what were the parameters you had to work with in terms of character and prop and line? I think we'd use a musical instrument as our prop, which lucky for me, one of my cast members played the violin and not very well. So it actually worked out 
perfectly <laughs> for what I needed it for. And then you, we had to use a character, which was, um, I know we used Rocky, but I think you could also use Raquel. And then the line was, did you wash your hands? Cause I think we were mid COVID at the time and everybody was mindful of that thing. So in the beginning, I bemoaned the fact that I had to use all of those things because I'm like, ah, you're holding me back creatively. But in the end, I actually really like that they're in there. There's little sort of Easter eggs, except when you put it out for people who are outside of the 48, you have to sort of give them context of why this person is playing a violin in the middle of whatever it is that you're talking about, because it really doesn't make sense outside of the 48. And one of the things that you're also restricted by is you draw a genre. Yes. So, um, and they give you two. And so uh, ours this year were the, it was horror and film noir. You've been bit. So I took the horror route. I actually, I took liberties with the horror because it, for me, it was more of a, mine was a movie within a movie. So they were filming a zombie movie, which was horror. And then in addition to that, it was supposed to be the main character's like worst nightmare, worst day, sort of like his life falling apart. So it wasn't traditional horror and that you see like ghosts and zombies and all that stuff. So I sort of took liberties with that. Are all the films that are showing at the San Diego International Film Festival, were these shot during pandemic or also outside of pandemic? Everything that's shot was shot during the pandemic, for sure, yeah. I want to make a comment about the prop because this is something that we struggle with every year, is having a fun prop that cannot be used as a weapon, not easily used as a weapon, because so many teams want to use their prop as a weapon. So every year, like one year we had marshmallows, and of course someone died by marshmallow, if you can imagine that even happening. So, But yeah, all the films were shot during the pandemic. They were all shot last year at the height of the pandemic, actually. And uh, we actually, uh, you know, speaking about the pandemic, we do have guidelines in place and actually an online certification that the filmmakers can get to say that they are doing safe set practices. And when are you going to be having your next event in terms of people actually making the films? We're looking at September this year and the same with last year because we were hoping that we would get to a point where theaters would open up last year and we would be able to have at least some form of in-person screening. And, you know, if we can't get a theater then it'll be online like it was last year. And I guess mid case scenario is that we do a limited in-person screening with an also uh, online presence as well. And Dwayne, if people want to find out about participating in the 48 hour film project, where can they get that information? So if they go to www.48hourfilm.com slash San Diego, that's where they can find out uh, information about the competition. Right now it says that no dates have been chosen yet. That will be updated as soon as uh, we, we know exactly what we're going to be doing this year. Um, I also wanna mention for beginning filmmakers, we encourage beginning filmmakers and we, if you email us and tell us that you're a beginning filmmaker, we'll work to get you hooked up with a mentor, somebody who's done it before to help you through that process. So it's a great, we have uh, high school teams that do it. And, and even our youngest filmmaker who formed his own team was nine years old and was very close to winning best film. He, he did a great film his first time. Of course, yeah, he was working with his family and everything, but he was the team leader at nine years old. It was amazing. <laughs> well, great. Well, thank you both very much for talking about the 48 hour film project showcase. Of course, yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, I appreciate it. 
That was Beth Accomando speaking with Dwayne Trammell and Christina Ruby. The 48-hour film project Shorts Block is available online this Friday at noon through the San Diego International Film Festival. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.